Thank you all for leading us in worship. I so enjoyed it. Um, I hope you guys are rested. I actually rarely sleep ever. I haven't slept in years, and I slept really well last night. Somebody was praying for me, so I am very grateful. So yesterday, last night, we covered a lot of material. We're going to slow down a little bit this morning, and we are going to focus in on really 33 short years rather than like thousands. So you don't have to listen quite so fast today. Where we left off in our story of redemption and in tracing the thread of God's promise of presence in Scripture, we left off in those 400 years of silence where God had promised to be with his people and promised to be with his people, and his people rebelled over and over and over and over, and yet God is still keeping his promise of presence. And then the people are taken captive, their temple is destroyed, the dwelling place of God is destroyed. They're captive for 70 years, they go back home, they try to rebuild the temple and reclaim the rhythms of worship, but their hearts are still far from the Lord. And then you have these 400 years of silence, no more prophets, no more good kings of Israel. And what you have is this people group who are living and waiting and probably wondering if the Lord is ever going to speak to them. Is he going to keep his promise of presence? When you open up your New Testament and you open to Matthew 1, the very first chapter of the New Testament, you get a genealogy. And what's so interesting about this family tree is that you can trace all of these people in this family tree, and you'll see many of the people that we mentioned last night, going all the way back through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the line of Judah. And you're going to get, the very end of that genealogy, you're going to get to a man named Jesus. This is a huge shift in the way that God manifest his presence to his people. Because what you have here is God not showing up in a cloud of smoke or a cloud of fire or settling over a structure like the tabernacle or the temple. You don't have him um, speaking to one person like Abraham specifically. What you have here is God the Son stepping into human history in human form in such a different way than his people could have ever, ever imagined. We celebrate this at Christmas. We just recently celebrated Christmas. And what we're celebrating at Christmas is what we call the incarnation, where Jesus becomes human and dwells among us. We call him Emmanuel, especially at Christmas time. We sing songs with that name because that name literally means God with us. And the reason that Jesus' birth is such a celebratory thing for Christians is because this is God stepping into human history to fix that problem of sin that we have, that idolatry problem that we have, that thing that turns our hearts away from him to pretty much any shiny thing that we can run after, that problem that plagued the Israelites and plagues every human that has ever been born except for this one. It was always God's plan to send Jesus. And I think it's really important. I think sometimes, especially if you're new to the Christian faith, you look at God sending Jesus and you think, oh, this was, okay, this is how he's going to fix the problem of sin. I'm really glad he thought of that. What it is actually was plan A. It was never plan B. If you go to Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, you will see that God had planned before the foundations of the world, before he said, let there be light. It was his plan to send Jesus to fix the problem of sin that humanity would have. It was always his plan. 
Jesus, however, it's not that him becoming a human, becoming a baby in the womb of a young woman named Mary, that's not when Jesus began to exist. Jesus has always existed for eternity past in perfect unity with God the Father and God the Spirit. And it is difficult to wrap our heads around the three persons of the Trinity. But basically, you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, God is, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, and then you can go back that other way and say all of those statements in reverse. They are three distinct persons, so it's three persons in one God. It's one of those things that we have trouble to understand with our human brains. I am fully confident that when we are in heaven and we see things clearly, that's going to make a lot more sense to us. <laughs> At least I hope so. It's one of my many questions I have when I get there. But what we have is Jesus the Son, God the Father, and God the Spirit existing in eternity past in perfect harmony, in unity, in love for one another. If you go to, I'm going to give you some examples, you don't have to turn to any of these, passages that speak to the eternal nature of Jesus. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, 1 Peter 1, Ephesians 1. Apparently, if you write a New Testament book, your first chapter has to address the eternal nature of Jesus because they all do it in the very first chapter. They're establishing that Jesus has always existed and that his incarnation, becoming a human, was such an earth-shifting thing for us. This is when God became man to fix the problem of sin for us. And here is why Jesus did this. He did this to obey the Father and to obey his law perfectly, which is not something any human was ever able to do. That law that God gave Moses to give to his people, to know how to live as people who belong to him, no one was able to keep it. It's why they had to make sacrifices in their tabernacle and later in the temple over and over and over and over again to cover their sins. Jesus obeyed God's law perfectly. He learned obedience and humility so that he could sympathize with us. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 3, and really chapters 3 through 6, that Jesus took on flesh for us, became human for us, and submitted himself to suffering and living as a human so that he could understand what it is like to be us, so that he could understand what it is like to live with human limitations, to suffer betrayal and bodily suffering. He came to die sacrificially to pay for our sin and to reconcile us to God, to fix that problem of sin between holy God and sinful man. He came to die and then to be raised three days later to have victory over sin, Satan, and death. He came to promise continual presence, to keep making that promise of presence and to keep that promise of presence. And he came to equip his disciples who would then make more disciples, who would then make more disciples of all people of all nations, not just the people of Israel. Because remember that promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis 12, through you all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed. This is through Abraham's line, his offspring, his descendants, comes Jesus. And so the offer of salvation through faith in Jesus is for all people of all nations. But before he did all that, he had to submit himself to being born as an infant. And the thing about babies is that they are completely dependent upon someone to take care of them. And it sort of blows my mind to think about Jesus, through whom God created the universe, being in this infant form, dependent upon a mother and a father to protect him and feed him. I mean, it's sort of hard to wrap my mind around. Jesus submitted himself to the human experience. So he grew up, he had a childhood, and probably scraped knees and had to learn how to walk and how to talk. 
He also um, had to grow up and learn his father, Joseph, his father's trade of carpentry. We know that from Scripture. It's amazing to think of God, Jesus the Son, doing these very, very human and normal things. Jesus grew up with a purpose, to obey the will of God the Father. Even as a 12-year-old boy, we know from the Gospels that Jesus knew who he was and he knew why he was here. When he was 30, he began his public ministry by calling some disciples, some followers, some guys to come and learn from him and to let him teach them and to become people who gathered around him. During his ministry, he taught, he preached, he performed miracles. He called people to repentance and faith, to believe in him as the Son of God, to declare that he was the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament, that he was the rescuer, the one that God spoke of back in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned, that someone would come to crush the head of the snake. That was Jesus, the fulfillment of that prophecy. He came to declare that he was the long-awaited Messiah, the one who would fix the problem of his people and to reconcile them to God. But this is not what Israel expected in a deliverer. Because at this point in history, Israel was living under the oppression of Rome. Rome was the rising power. It was the strongest nation of the times. And they were very oppressive to the smaller nations. They taxed them just about to death. And so the people of Israel, at this point, after 400 years of silence, are probably a lot like the Israelites back in Exodus after 400 years of slavery. They're crying out to God and waiting for someone to deliver them. And probably what they wanted and what they expected was another Moses. Someone to come in and free them from the political power of Rome. Someone to deliver them and help them set up a kingdom again. That is not what Jesus came to do. Jesus didn't come to free them from the political power of a nation like Rome. He came to free his people from their greatest enemy, which was their sin. Because this is what God does for us. He meets our needs with himself. And he always aims for the heart. And that is what Jesus did in his ministry. What's so interesting about this and is so different from how the people of God perceived and understood God's presence in the Old Testament. I mean, you had this very fearsome view of God with, with the cloud of smoke and the fire by night and the manifest of his presence over the temple and it rising and they would pack up and go and then it would settle and they'd stay. And the miracles that his people saw in the wilderness and as they left Egypt, this is very different because this is a man walking around looking very much like them and for the first time ever ever you could look God in the eyes you could hear his voice you could recognize his laugh you could put your hand on his shoulder you could see the skin around his eyes crinkle when he smiled you could smell him because I don't think there was any Old Spice back then, so I think everyone had, like, a distinct odor. You could smell God. Like, that is so weird. And it seems a little bit weird to think about that, like we're going to detract from his divinity by talking about his humanity. But the thing is, he was 100% God and also 100% man. And so he had a human body, and you could touch him and see him and smell him and hear him. And, and that had never happened before. Never happened before. This is such a, a different way to understand God's presence. You could sit across the table and share a meal with him. I mean, I would love to know what that's like. 
In John 1, when the Apostle John describes the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus becoming human, um, to dwell with us, he uses a really interesting word to describe it. So, you know, in John 1 starts, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. There he is talking about the eternal nature of Jesus. Jesus has always existed. And then he says that Jesus came to dwell among us. So in John 1, verse 14, he says this, the word, and he's talking about Jesus, the word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And depending on what translation you use, some translations say the word became flesh and dwelled among us. Whichever way you take it, took up residence or dwelled, the word that John uses in the Greek, I'm going to attempt to pronounce it, it's skenao. That's like the extent of my foreign language ability. So skenao, what it means in Greek is tabernacle. It's the Greek word for what they would have used in Hebrew for tabernacle under the Old Covenant. So in essence, here's what John is saying. Jesus took up residence and he tabernacled among us. He pitched a tent of human skin, so to speak, and he lived among his people. And keep that in mind because we're going to see that again in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It used to be a voice, a cloud, a fire, and now was a man present with skin. And you could look him in the eyes and you could talk to him. This is so different from the way that God had manifested his presence under the Old Covenant and in those years before Jesus' birth. We were separated from God by our sin. and We couldn't work our way to him, so he came to us. I mean, nobody loves you like that. Jesus' earthly ministry was pretty astounding when you read about it from the gospel accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, he was the Son of God, is the Son of God, so he could have come and grown up, and then he could have walked around and said, everyone bow down and worship me because I am God, and I deserve your loyalty. I mean, he could have demanded anything because he was God. Instead, he washed people's feet like, that's like the lowest form of uh, slavery and what the servants of the house in that time, it was like you're the person lowest on the totem pole. That was the person who washed people's feet because it was very dusty climate and they wore sandals and they didn't bathe a lot. So Jesus lowers himself and humbles himself to wash feet. He also, in healing people, touched people with very contagious diseases. Like leprosy, you don't touch someone with leprosy, right? And in that time, leprosy was considered such a, such a terrible thing that lepers had to live separately from the rest of the population. But that did not deter Jesus, the Son of God, and rather, he touched them. He had compassion on people, like they were sheep without a shepherd. He healed the lame and the blind, the destitute, and even the dead. He called sinners to new life, he was unbelievably direct with the religious elite, the people who thought they knew all the answers. He was very direct with them, and he always aimed for the heart when he talked to people because he knew what people needed the most was a new heart, a heart that would beat for him and not for the world and the things that they desired. He represented the Father to them, and he does that to us. To see Jesus was to see God. The author of Hebrews 1 calls Jesus the exact imprint of the Father's nature. 
He radiated the Father's presence to them. His holiness overshadowed man's sinfulness, which is why he could touch someone with leprosy, and rather than getting leprosy, he would heal them. And that's, in a sense, what he does with us in our sin. That's the way that the gospel works. When we repent of our sin and believe in Jesus as a sacrifice for our sin on the cross, the overwhelming holiness of Christ is credited to our account, canceling the record of sin against us. His grace covers us so that when God looks at us, rather than seeing us in our sinful state, he sees Jesus. I mean, that is amazing. That is why the gospel is good news. Jesus did a lot of miraculous things during his ministry, healing people, doing some things with nature that was pretty crazy, but he was always after their hearts, and he wanted them to see him for who he was, which was the Son of God. Seeing Jesus as who he is and who he had declared himself to be as the presence of God, this is what helps us endure when life is hard. Knowing that Jesus is the sustainer of the universe, as Paul calls him in Colossians 1, this is what helps us hold on when our life is falling apart. It is his presence that enables us to hold fast while enduring suffering. There's a story in Matthew 14. It's one of my favorite stories, and I'm going to tell you why. I could spend a lot of time through Jesus's ministry. I mean, I think it was John who said if, if we wrote down all the things that Jesus did, we would fill all the books in the world. But I can't do that because I only have a little bit of time, but I want to focus in on one story. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew 14, 22, but you can also just listen because I'm going to tell you the story. And before I tell you the story, I want to sort of set the stage. I talked uh, last night just about dealing with my diagnosis of infertility, walking through really difficult church ministry, and the stress of that ministry seemed to trigger some physical symptoms in my life. Uh, we were, in God's unbelievable kindness to us, able to adopt our, our first son, Isaiah. He is now 15 and six foot two. And uh, we brought him home. He is just one of God's greatest gifts to us. And when he was pretty young, I want to say like two, three, we started the adoption process again, this time from another country. We spent years in the adoption process before the country that we were adopting from actually closed to American adoptions. And after spending thousands of dollars and three to four years on a waiting list, we had to sort of start over. Started over with another domestic adoption and then began to wait years again to add to our family. During this time, my husband's ministry sort of began to implode. Now, I, I wanna, I'm always want to be careful when I talk about that because I don't want to throw people under the bus, but it was incredibly stressful. I lived with a lot of fear, not just that my husband might be fired from his job, but also um, I actually feared for our safety at times, which sounds a little extreme, but it wasn't. And the stress of that period awakened some symptoms, and I described those last night. And I saw lots of doctors try to get diagnoses. Doctors would look at all my information and say, you're perfectly healthy, we think this is all in your head, which is not helpful. <laughs> and I became a little bit of a basket case, anxious about what was wrong with me, wondering if it was all in my head, except that I had such crippling pain, I knew it wasn't all in my head. And I remember this one night, I think it was June of 2015, if I have the date right. I had been living with this disease for six years, not knowing what it was. And because I didn't know what it was, I really was afraid I was dying. 
And I remember one particular night, we live in a really old house, and there are, uh, the front of our house is like all windows across the front and these really old creaky wooden floors. And I remember being up two, three in the morning, which is pretty normal for me. I could sleep two or three hours before being ratcheted awake by just agonizing pain. And it had ramped up over the years and gotten worse and worse. And this was the, at its peak, the highest it had ever been. And I'm up in the middle of the night, and I'm walking the floors. My husband's asleep. Our young son was asleep. And I remember it must have been a full moon that night because I'm walking those creaky hardwood floors, and I could see, like, the moonlight on the floor through the windows. And I remember I was walking. I was actually walking like this because I couldn't stand up straight. And I'm just shuffling across the floor. And actually, my pain was so great. I just felt if somebody could snap my spine in half, I might feel better. And I started to have a panic attack because the pain was so intense, I was having trouble breathing. And I remember, you know, at this point, I had spent a few years going through the Bible, asking this question, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And the Lord had really just torn apart my theology and rebuilt it. And I had learned that he was present, and I had learned that he was enough for me, and that he could sustain me on the dark nights of the soul and the body. And I remember that night hurting so much and asking him to heal me and him not healing me. And I'd been praying that for years. And I remember praying to him just with tears and a panic attack and so much pain. I remember saying to him, I am afraid I'm going to lose what I have learned about you. I've spent so much time trying to rebuild what I know to be true about you. And I know you are good, but my faith is unbelievably weak right now. I don't know if I can keep holding on to you in this state. And I, I think just in God's kindness, just because I believe that he loves me, he reminded me of this story from Matthew 14. I don't think I had studied it recently. I think the Spirit just brought it to mind because this is what I needed in that moment. In this particular spot in Matthew 14, Jesus is ministering, he's teaching, he's told lots of parables, done some healings. This is like the peak of his ministry. His cousin, John the Baptist, had just been murdered by King Herod. Then Jesus feeds the 5,000 with some bread and some fish that someone gave him, and he multiplied it. And it's really, they say 5,000, but that's just the men. There were women and children. So you're probably looking like 10,000 people that he's, maybe more, that he's fed and spoken to, and he's tired, and he dismisses the crowd of people to leave, and he tells his disciples to get in a boat, they're going to cross the Sea of Galilee, and he's like, I'm going to meet you later. He goes off to pray by himself. So we're going to pick up at Matthew 14, verse 22. I'm going to read it and then walk through it. Immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water and came to Jesus. And when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. 
And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So Jesus has sent the disciples ahead to cross the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee was a large body of water, so when it says they are far from land, they're probably more than a mile, mile plus from land. And the Sea of Galilee was known to have these, like, um, squalls come up out of nowhere. You guys live near the beach. You know what a squall is. So come up out of nowhere. The wind can be really hard on the Sea of Galilee. It makes really choppy, tempestuous waters. So this is what the disciples are dealing with, and they're really far from land. And all of a sudden, they see someone walking towards them. And even though they have just seen Jesus feed, like, 10,000 people with a couple of loaves of bread, they're like, it is a ghost, <laughs> which is really funny to me that their immediate thought is that this person walking on the water to them is a ghost. And Jesus is like, no, it's me. And so Peter, who is maybe my favorite person in the New Testament, because he's just so impulsive, kind of salty, just really acts without thinking, he says, um, if it is you, tell me to come out there. It's like, prove it. So Jesus is like, well, come on. And so Peter just jumps out of the boat and starts walking on top of the water. And it's not like they're just a few feet from the shore, because even if they were, nobody can walk on water. doesn't matter. But they're a mile from shore, and Peter's walking on the water to Jesus. And this is one of those scenes that when we get to heaven and, you know, we can see and know all of the things clearly, this is something, like, I want to be able to play back on a screen and see, because I want to see this. Or maybe somehow do this. Peter's walking on the water, standing there with Jesus. This is probably like the highlight of Peter's life at this point. And then all of a sudden, Peter starts to look at the waves tossing because the wind and the storm are all riled up, and he starts to sink. And what he cries out is, Lord, save me. That's all he says, Lord, save me. And Jesus, so interestingly, does two things. He rebukes Peter's weak faith while reaching out his hand and saving him. You of little faith, why did you doubt? He did not let Peter sink, but he did bring attention to what the problem that Peter had. He sort of showed Peter what was in his heart, which was doubt and fear. Doubt that this, this man, God, who was right there with him on the water, was somehow going to let him sink. Because Peter's right there in the presence of Jesus, standing on top of the water, and still gets afraid of the things going on around him. And that sort of overshadows his trust in Jesus. But what Jesus does is rebukes that weak faith while also delivering him from his fear. What's interesting to note, and this is one of the things that really struck me that night of such intense pain, is that Jesus did not immediately calm the sea. If you notice, uh, verse, let's see, it is verse 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. So if you think about this, Jesus grabs Peter's hand and he makes him walk back to the boat in the storm. Not until they get in the boat does the storm and the sea actually settle. And that's what Jesus did. And what's interesting about the timing is that Peter was afraid. And what Jesus did was sort of make Peter trust him before things calmed down. Before, before the sea calmed, they had to walk back across the water into the boat. This is the story that I was thinking about, that the Lord brought to mind that night. And I remember thinking, 
and crying out myself, Lord, save me, because what else do you say when you're so full of pain that you can hardly think of anything else? Lord, save me. I don't want to lose what I have learned about you. My faith feels so weak. But in that moment, thinking about Peter and Jesus on the water, when I realized that Peter's faith was weak, but the object of his faith was very, very strong. And in those moments when our suffering presses in and we are afraid that we cannot hold on to him any longer, what should encourage us is that he is holding on to us. Because this is the God who has promised, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to be with you. So in our darkest moments, the Lord is never going to abandon us. He's never going to leave us alone because it is not in his character to do so. He has pressed his presence with his people throughout all of redemptive history. So why do we think he's going to abandon us now? And I remember thinking through this on that night, and I will tell you, the Lord did not heal me. That was almost nine years ago, and I still deal with chronic pain. But what the Lord taught me is that he will never leave me to suffer alone. And if my suffering forces me to cry out, Lord, save me every single night of my life, then there is a gift in that suffering for it keeps me near his side, keeps me from running after everything in this world that I think might satisfy me. The thing is, is that Jesus, Jesus knows what it is to suffer, and he knows what we need in the middle of our suffering. He knows that what we need is him, and we need to trust that he is with us, and that somehow, when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with us, and somehow he will use that suffering for good in our lives. We may not see it this side of heaven, but we'll see it then, I'm sure of it. Jesus knows what it is to suffer. What Jesus understands and what we are free from is that Jesus suffered alone so that we don't have to. Jesus' path to the cross was sure. He never deviated from the Father's plan to give his life for ours. He told his disciples many times that he would go away from them. And then when they didn't quite get it, he said that he would die, and then they argued with him. But he was certain. He was headed to the cross. Nothing could keep him from it. His claims to be the Son of God deeply angered the religious leaders at the time because they saw it as blasphemy. And if he hadn't been God, it would have been blasphemy. But he was God, and he was telling the truth. He was betrayed by his friend Judas. So think about this. Betrayed, arrested, lied about, falsely accused, mocked, beaten, humiliated, stripped naked, sentenced to death, and made to carry his own cross to his execution. And you tell me that Jesus doesn't understand what it is to suffer unjustly. He does. He absolutely does. He died a criminal's death. And if you go back to the book of Exodus, you will see that there is no more accursed way to die than to be hung on a tree. And Jesus took that for us. He died a criminal's death in our place. And he breathed his last breath. It is finished because he was the payment for our sin at the cross. Because all the way back in Genesis, we learned that the payment for sin is death. And Jesus came to pay that for us. Dead. Dead. And I'm sure his disciples had to be thinking, what now? This is the man that we have like hitched our wagon to for the last three years. He was supposed to be the hope of the world, and now he is dead. 
And the thing is, is that he was dead because of my sin and because of your sin. Our idolatry, our selfishness, our incessant desire to be satisfied by things that will never, ever, ever heal our hearts. These are the reasons Jesus came to die. And he suffered alone on the cross so that we would never have to suffer alone. We're going to talk about that more in our last session. His death means life to us. His death, actually, though it looked like he was gone, and he was, he was dead, his death would actually mean a continual promise of God's presence for us. Let me just pause and say, if you are a believer in Jesus, there is not a moment in your life when you suffer alone. Not one moment. If you suffer grief from losing someone, if you suffer from a physical disease, if you suffer from loneliness or from waiting for the Lord to answer a prayer you're afraid he'll never answer the way you want, there is not one moment that you are in that by yourself. Jesus suffered alone so that you wouldn't have to. God raised Jesus from the dead three days later, giving him victory over sin, Satan, and death and him, death itself. That curse from Genesis 3 was reversed through the resurrection of Jesus. And this is what I love about like songs that talk about the resurrection. It's always in that third or fourth verse. Because Jesus' resurrection guarantees that we too one day will be resurrected. That though we die on this earth, we will live again forever. That is what Jesus' death also accomplished for us. After he was resurrected, he appeared to over 500 people. He spent some time with his disciples and commissioned them, telling them to go out and to make more disciples of people from many nations and to baptize them into his name. He promised them that he would be with them always. At the end of Matthew, he says, and lo, um, I will be with you always. And then he leaves, which is interesting. <laughs> and it seems like, okay, you're going to be with us, and now you're leaving, so you've obviously broken your promise of presence. But he didn't. The book of Acts picks up right there where Jesus is commissioning his disciples to make disciples in, of many nations. He commissions them. He tells them he's going to leave. He leaves. They pray, because what else are they going to do in that moment? They gather together, and they spend some time praying, and the Holy Spirit comes in this moment. This is what we call Pentecost. This is Acts 2. And this is where the Holy Spirit comes like a rushing wind. It's a really miraculous setting, this miraculous manifestation of God's presence. And this is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And he comes, and he is evidenced in this group of Christians, new Christians who are, you know, just have just watched Jesus leave. And there's like these little flames of fire over their head, and they have this ability to speak languages that they did not know before. And people who are around them are hearing these Christians speak in their native tongues. They're like, wait, how are they speaking in those languages? This is an obvious gift of the Holy Spirit. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is fulfilling a promise that Jesus had made to them. In John 16, Jesus has, had said to the disciples, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me, because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. This is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. So what Jesus is saying is, you know, I am promising you that the Spirit is going to come. And he will come, and one of his jobs is he will guide you into all truth. And he will be with you. And you see Jesus speaking about the Spirit as a distinct person. 
He keeps calling him he. He is separate from the Father and separate from the Son. So he is the third person of the Trinity, the third person of the Godhead. And so he has come. He is literally filling these Christians. And if you go through the book of Acts, I'm actually in Acts chapter 27 in my personal study, my Bible study group. We've been in Acts since April of last year, moving very, very slowly. And if, but focusing on the spreading of the gospel in the book of Acts, and you have like Jewish Christians coming or Jews coming to faith, and now they're Jewish Christians, and the Holy Spirit is filling them. And then you have um, Peter and Paul taking the gospel to Gentiles, to people who are outside of this ethnic Israel people group, and they are getting filled with the Holy Spirit. And what you see is whoever calls on the name of Jesus is saved, and the Holy Spirit indwells them. You, see, you follow through the book of Acts, specifically the last half of the book, you focus on the ministry of Paul as he takes the gospel to all the known world at the time and, and planting churches and people are believing in Jesus and then they share the gospel and then they share the gospel and then they share the gospel. And, and that leads us really to where we are right now. This is where we are in redemptive history, what I would call the church age where the gospel has spread and spread and spread. And the only reason that you and I are sitting here in Florida, in the United States of America, in 2024, as Gentile Christians, maybe there's someone of Jewish background in here, but I would argue most of us are Gentiles, and we are believers in Jesus because those Christians in the first century church were faithful to share the gospel. Faithful to share the gospel. And the next generation, faithful to share the gospel faithful to share the gospel. And, and the gospel of Jesus spread and spread and spread throughout the world and throughout the ages until we are now in what we call the church age where everyone who believes in Jesus has the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. He lives in each believer. And how different is that from the way that God showed up with his presence in the, in the Old Testament of fire and smoke? and the presence over the temple. How different is that from Jesus, one, one man walking the earth over in the Middle East in this very small circle of area where he lived and ministered to where now everyone who believes in him has the presence of God living in them personally. I mean, that is a huge shift in how we experience the presence of God. The Holy Spirit, some of the things that he does for us he guides us. He comforts us. I believe that's what he was doing for me that night of such horrific pain. He reminds us of scripture. He illuminates God's word for us, helping us to understand it. He convicts us of sin, encourage us, encourages us when we're discouraged, corrects us when we're wrong, and goes with us wherever we go. He is always, always with us. And that is why there is never a moment that you are suffering that you are suffering alone. Because there is nowhere that you can go to get away from his spirit. Like Psalm 139 the author says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I go to the depths, you are there. Wherever you go, the Lord is there, and he is with you. This is an amazing form and understanding of God's presence that the people, the Israelites, wandering the desert back in the Old Testament could have never, ever imagined. It is a gift and a privilege that we could never earn. This is God living in us. I mean, if you stop and think about it, if you go back and read the Old Testament law and you see how meticulously God's people had to obey to even approach the tabernacle, to even send a priest into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where God's presence was as a part of that tabernacle and later the temple structure. I mean, they sent a priest in one day a year on the Day of Atonement 
to atone for the sins of all the people. And it was such a fearsome thing for him to approach the presence of God in that way that what we learn from tradition is that they would tie a rope around the priest's ankle in case he sinned in the presence of God and was struck dead and they needed to drag his body out. I mean, it was a fearsome thing when God was um, up on the mountain with Moses to give the law and the mountain, he had told the people, you need to go and consecrate yourselves and clean yourselves up and, and be chaste. And I want you to stand at the foot of the mountain where my presence is going to be seen. If you even touch the mountain, you'll die. I mean, God's presence was a fearsome thing. So think about that. This is one of the things that Jesus accomplished for us at the cross. If you go to Hebrews chapter 10, you will see that Jesus has opened up free access to God the Father through his death and his resurrection. Not only did he pay for our sins and make us clean, he gave us free access to God the Father. We can approach God because the Holy Spirit lives in us and we, we have no fear. Because like I said, when we believe in Jesus, his righteousness is credit, credited to our account so that when God sees us, he doesn't see all of the shameful, idolatrous ways anymore. He sees the righteousness of Christ. I mean, that is miraculous. That is good, good news for us. We have God's presence living in us at all times. We never have to suffer alone. So what can we learn from, from the life of Jesus, from Jesus living in human form, experiencing suffering just as we do, and dying for us, rising again, ascending to heaven, sending the Spirit to be with his people, what we see is the promise of God's presence being made and kept, made and kept, made and kept, because he is a promise-keeping God, and he is a God who presses into us and gives us his presence because he loves us. I believe that God living in you is an expression of his love for you. If he hated you, he would not send his spirit to live in you. And I think sometimes we, we believe that God saved us, and we're so thankful, but we're a little worried that because we are prone to wander, because we are prone to run after idols of our hearts, whatever they might be, we're afraid that God is just perpetually disgruntled towards us, right? Like, he saved us, but he's kind of grumpily sanctifying us. Like, he holds us at arm's length because we tend to, ro to roam and wander, and we need to remember what wretches we are. I think there is a particular um, bent towards that in some theological circles. I see that in my own life. But as I studied the gift of God's presence through Scripture, what I see is a God who loves his people, who set his affections upon our hearts before he said, let there be light. And he has made promises and kept promises. Number one, to be true to his name, because he will not compromise his character because he is good. And number two, because he chose to love us. And I can't explain it, and I don't understand it, and I didn't earn it, and neither did you, but God has set his love upon you, and so he will not abandon you. He is not holding you at arm's length. He would not have sent Jesus to die for you just to stiff-arm you the rest of your life. So if he is drawing you through a season of suffering, it isn't necessarily because he's angry with you. All of his anger and wrath toward your sin was taken by Jesus at the cross. There is therefore now no condemnation for you, we learn from Romans. All of the, the judgment 
that we deserve for our sin, Jesus swallowed at the cross for us. And so when God looks at you, he looks at you with love. And there is nothing that you may walk through in this life that will separate you from his love. No suffering, no loss, no grief, no lack. Not, not even life and death itself can separate you from his love. His presence with you is an expression of his love for you. And we might think, well, if he loved me, then wouldn't he end my suffering? Let me tell you, I'm going to talk about this more in our next session, but just because he allows you to walk through suffering doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. We follow a Savior who suffered. It makes sense that we're going to suffer in this life. This world is broken and bent by sin. Sometimes we suffer because of our own sin, you know, consequences. Sometimes we suffer because of other people's sin. And sometimes we suffer and we find no reason for it. And that's the hardest kind to reconcile. But if God draws us through suffering, it is because he will use it to cultivate perseverance in our lives. He will teach us, like Peter, to cry out, Lord, save me maybe every single day, that if the suffering that he is calling you through keeps you near his side, keeps you clinging to him, even when your faith feels weak, that is not a bad place to be. Because though your faith may be weak, the object of your faith, Jesus, is very, very strong. And in your suffering, he is with you and he is holding fast to you. He will never, ever let go. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for just the, the many details that you've given us in Scripture about the life and ministry of your Son. I thank you that you didn't send Jesus to, to live this completely other life, completely separate from human experience. That we have an advocate who understands what it's like to be human, what it's like to be tempted by sin, what it's like to... Um, be afflicted with physical and spiritual and emotional suffering. But Jesus stood firm. And because of that, we have a Savior who lives to intercede for us, who even now is at your right hand praying for us. Like That is such a gift. We thank you for sending your Spirit so that we are not left here alone. And that as we, we long for what comes next, what's next in the story of redemption, we are never, ever walking this alone. We are never living this alone. And we thank you for the many ways that you have expressed your love to us through presence. Lord, when our faith feels weak, let us turn to you first and cry out, Lord, save me. And know that you have, and you are, and you will. You have saved us and you are saving us still because one day you will present us without blemish before the Father. Thank you, Lord, that you are always, always with us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take a break, I think, until 11. I think Erica will then re reconvene for us. Um, so use the restroom, fill up your coffee, chat, all of the things. We'll be back here at 11. <laughs>